0: We're nearing the book of, or the end of the book of Revelation now. Uh, We have, I think as of right now, three weeks to go. And this morning we come to John's stunning description of a new heaven and a new earth in chapters 21 and 22. And it's a beautiful passage, and it's got me thinking a lot about hope. I think a lot about hope as a youth pastor. Um, The psychologist Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor... He observed back in 1946 that human beings can endure almost anything. Uh, he actually was, was taken into the Nazi death camps um, and was sent on the death marches and everything. All of his life's work was destroyed, and he clung to this little piece of hope um, about getting back to, back to normal, having one little shred of hope, and he hung on to that, and that got him through this horrific experience. Um, So he he came up with what he called logotherapy, the idea that as long as we have this one little bit of hope, we can cling on to and endure almost anything, but if we lose hope, we're done. Um, A lot of writers and thinkers have been noting recently that there seems to be an epidemic of hopelessness among the rising generation, what they call Gen Z. Uh, Suicide has become the second leading cause of death among young Americans, and 22%, according to the CDC, 22% of adolescents report that they have, quote, seriously considered taking their own life. That's a staggering statistic to me as a youth pastor. Uh, in the last 10 years, self-harm hospitalizations, the last 10 years, have risen among youth by 163%. Um, And so I was reading an article by a young woman who was from Gen Z, and she wrote that, quote, all the things that have traditionally made life worth living, love, community, country, faith, work, and family, have been debunked. Everything that matters, she continues, has been devalued for my generation, leaving behind a generation with gaping holes where the foundations of a meaningful life should be. And she says that instead... Her generation has been given this like smorgasbord of easy and unsatisfying substitutes through social media, through dating apps pretending to give us intimacy, uh, and through political ideologies trying to replace the faith commitments that her parents' generation held. And these have just left Gen Z with this deepening sense of despair and hopelessness and loneliness. And ultimately, she concludes that her generation has inherited what she calls a post-hope world. Now, I know I'm not speaking to a congregation predominantly of uh, 11 to 26-year-olds, although there are some of you. Uh, But I wonder, maybe you felt that you're living in a post-hope world, too. Maybe it's not just social media. Maybe you're not on social media. I don't know. Um, maybe it's not watching the news. Maybe it is, but, but maybe it's just this creeping sense of anxiety or cynicism that's grown over the past few years. Maybe you've learned to be just a little bit less trusting than you used to be. Maybe Thanksgiving dinner is a little bit more anxiety-producing than it was a decade ago for you. I don't know. Um, or maybe grief has hollowed you out and sucked all the joy out of life. Or or there's some kind of pain or suffering uh, that's kind of quietly simmering on the back burner that just makes everything, every day, seem impossible to get through. Uh, A lot of us live in this kind of post-hope reality. And we need hope in order to survive. And our politics are not delivering it for us. No matter which political side of the aisle you are on, it's not delivering it. Our social media is not delivering it. Uh, tweaking your existence with technology and making things more convenient. How's that working out for you? Um, it's, you know, new cars, new houses. Money doesn't deliver it. So what, where are we going to get our hope? Because we've got to have hope in order to survive. It's like air. We've got to have it. The gospel has real hope. Um, and that's what Revelation 21 is about. Real hope. There's a lot of imagery in this passage and I'm going to disappoint you all this morning and tell you that I'm not going to talk about any of it this week. Uh, next week we're going to go into what John sees but this week we're talking about what he hears. Remember throughout the book of Revelation there's uh There's always this kind of dichotomy between what John sees with his eyes, he looks around and sees, and then he hears something that complements that. And so over the next two weeks, this week we're going to talk about what does he hear with his ears, and next week we're going to look at what does he see with his eyes. And what he hears is five promises spoken directly from the throne of God, and these promises give us solid hope. And so this is a sermon about hope this morning. The first promise, look with me at verse 3. The first promise is God's presence, his presence. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, remember, slow down, stop, pay attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, I don't know about you, but my household usually doesn't use the language of dwelling very often. Uh, Sam didn't say to me this morning, Father, will you come and dwell with me on the love seat and read me this story? It's like, it's usually books thrown in my face. Read the book to me. Um, Dwell is kind of a, it's an archaic word a little bit. It literally means tabernacle. Does anyone say tabernacle at home? Please tell me. I'm just, yeah, Zach, all right, I've been dying for someone to raise their hand and say, yeah, we talk about tabernacling all the time. Uh, The tabernacle of God with man. He will tabernacle with them. Uh, This takes us way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, where we read that the man and the woman walked with God in the garden. This is Genesis 3, 8. They enjoyed his uninterrupted presence, God and humanity dwelled together. You were made for that. And ever since the first human rebellion, God has been seeking to put this back together. That relationship has been fractured. And so God wants to be with us. The problem is that when God seeks to dwell or tabernacle with his people, his glory has his Shekinah would destroy them. It will melt their faces off because we are sinful and he's a holy God. And so, uh, in order to shield us from his Shekinah, he builds a skene, a tent, a dwelling, a tabernacle, so that he can camp out in the midst of his people and be with them. You get the sense as you read through the Old Testament, God is desperate to be with us. He's desperate. His prize in this whole gig is nothing less than you. That's what he's willing to sacrifice for us. So much so, this ultimately reaches its climax. John 1.14, Jesus, the word become flesh, came and dwelt, the word is literally skene, tabernacled among us. So the promise is that just, uh, this is just the beginning of it. God tabernacled in Christ and in the end, uh, the promise is that from the throne is that God will make his dwelling, his tabernacle with us. I'm wondering if you've ever been on a first date. Uh, married people, can you remember your first date with your spouse? Uh, I'm getting so many great looks from the audience here, from the congregation. I, I just remember that when I was on my first date with Jenna, the th- one of the things that really just like stuck out to me was that she, i got to, she was really a good actor i guess but she gave me this real sense that she liked being with me <laughs> i still can't understand it she still she still's been acting at it this whole time i don't get it but it's so dignifying isn't it when you encounter a person that just wants to be in your presence to be with you god desires to tabernacle with you and with me nothing gives us more dignity than that and he says that someday all of us isolated lonely spiritually disconnected people will tabernacle with him we will he will be our god we will be his people that's the first promise presence the second promise is in verse four healing verse four he will wipe away every tear from their eyes And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Uh, The psalmist says that God puts our tears in his bottle, Psalm 56. In other words, he doesn't lose track of a single ounce of suffering that happens in this world. That's got to be a pretty big bottle, don't you think? Um... Every grief, every moment of suffering is intimately known to God. This is partly why Jesus is called a man of sorrows in Isaiah. Um, But God has said, I'm not always just going to bottle up the tears. Someday I'm going to wipe them away. Um, God has promised healing. There will come a day when leukemia and post-traumatic stress and arthritis... And male pattern baldness. <laughs> I wasn't really sure whether to make that joke or not. That was a little too edgy. I was like, he's a real, <laughs> I decided he's a good sport, so. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a coming a day when that will be no more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Amen. You know, I looked in the mirror uh about a year ago and I noticed that my hair my own hairline had been receding. I know I'm I'm only 34, but it's coming. So you guys just you guys can laugh at me in 15 years here, all right? Um it's coming. Uh in the Lord of the Rings, uh there's this wonderful scene where um Gandalf, who's the great wizard, he's he had he had died and he comes back as Gandalf the White. And the hobbits, uh, Sam and Frodo, come and they see him for the first time. And Sam looks at the the glory, his shining robes, and he says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? <sighs> uh, I'd notice every, every April with our... Our students that there's this sort of and with the teachers too right there's this little gleam in their eyes because it's it's still there's still mid you know finals going on there's still homework but the holiday is coming and that just gives them like this little extra kick to hang in there because it's not always going to be this way the school term will not always continue the holiday is coming healing is on Uh, it's on the horizon, friends. God has promised it from the throne. And so we have these two promises from the throne, presence and healing, and third, restoration. Verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Ta Panta, all things. The gospel's good news for more than just your individual soul. The whole creation is going to be made new. The rocks, the trees, the earth, the clean air, the water, renewed ecosystems, all those like uh, spotted lantern flies are totally going to go back to whatever horrible hole they came from. You know what I'm talking about? Um, the better art, redeemed cultures, good technology that promotes human wholeness and healing and wellness that's the promise here. In the late 1800s, uh, there was a, a guy who graduated from his seminary doctoral pro, uh, program in the Netherlands by the name of Abraham Kuyper, and he was a really smart guy, and he was kind of in the, the progressive liberal wing of, of the theology department, and you know, since he was smart, he got placed in this parish, and he started preaching with his smart, flashy ideas, and there was this one woman who just hated his guts, and um, her name was Pietje Baltus. I butchered that name, but uh, she, so she just could not stand his, his, he was just full of ideas and full of, full of himself, really, and so uh, Abraham Guyper goes around and makes his visits, and he comes to this woman and, uh, and, and she just lets him have it. And she explains to him very kindly that he's full of ideas and knows nothing about Christ crucified. And this really terrifying thing for a pastor happened. Um, he became a Christian. <laughs> and and that, that woman, Pietra Baltus, uh, actually led this, her pastor to Christ um and so you sitting in the pews you have more influence than you think um but but uh over time as abraham kuyper then started opening the scriptures and seeing what god was doing he he read revelation 21 and other passages like it and saw that god has this promise to make everything new and so he said this eventually later on in his life um, after becoming a newspaper man, after starting the Free University of Amsterdam, after becoming prime minister, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. This is why in our church we don't say that like the holiest vocation Is the guy who's like wearing the weird collar? Um, That if you're, I don't know, the uh, if you're you're the sanitation engineer picking up the garbage on a cold November morning, um, that has dignity. You're cleaning up the world that God is making new someday. We're all putting working with God, and He's going to make everything new. The whole thing. God doesn't make junk. And he doesn't junk what he makes. The world's not just going to burn. God will restore it. Now this leads us to a note about verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. There seems to be a tension between this, right? I'm behold, I'm making all things new. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How do we reckon this idea of a good God who is restoring all things and yet some have a portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death? I wish I had like total, complete pastoral wisdom to know exactly how to perfectly explain this to all of you. Um, Sorry, you're not going to get that this morning. Alex will get that in two weeks, along with some good insults for me. Um, But two notes. First, we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Um, There is a strand of arrogance in me that comes to passages like this, and I want to pretend that I am more righteous and just and merciful than God. That somehow I know better than him. And so therefore I can be the judge over God and say that his justice is not just. Um, So when I get incensed at verse 8, I have to remind myself that I am not the final arbiter of good and evil. And neither are you. Um, At a certain point we have to trust that God's ways are good. Second, we remember that God is not a bully. Um, He's patient toward his people. He doesn't make us into automatons and just force his way on us. Um, You actually can look true life and goodness and love in the eye and say, no, thank you very much, I'll take death. C.S. Lewis wrote that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. So we have presence, healing, restoration, and fourth, contentment. Verse 5. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Has anyone ever been really thirsty before? It's agony. Um, the biblical writers compare our soul's need for God to our body's need for water. And I think we all know what that feels like. Psalm 42 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams. <sighs> So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63:1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Without water, your body will die. Without the indwelling presence of God, your soul will die. This is why Jesus talks so much about thirst. He tells the Samaritan woman in John 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Later, he stands up in the middle of a Jewish festival and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, if there's a verse that I want to give to our students, it's that, man. Are you thirsty? Come to him and drink. And John adds, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Come to me and drink. What will you get? You will get filled with the spirit of God. So the promise. Our anxious tossings and turnings. Our sense of discontent and ennui. It won't last forever. God has promised that he will satisfy us. He will give us actual contentment. Our thirst will be slaked. So four promises. Presence. Healing. Restoration. Restoration contentment and finally adoption verse 7 the one who conquers will have this heritage and i will be his god and he will be my son now i don't know about you uh most days my life does not feel like conquering amen <laughs> being conquered yes <laughs> Uh, I have little kids. So being conquered for sure, enduring maybe, conquering I don't think so. Doesn't feel that way. But if we look through the book of Revelation, we see that followers of Jesus don't conquer by crushing their enemies or forcing them into submission. Conquer is a very mixed word for John. Uh, we see in in uh, I think around chapter is it chapter seven chapter 6, there's a white horse who comes out conquering, a rider on a white horse who comes conquering and to conquer. He's a bad guy. Conquering is seen as a bad thing of crushing one's enemies. And yet, guess who also conquers? The lamb. The lamb who looks as if he was slain, he conquers. And who else conquers? The people of God conquer. And they conquer, chapter 12, verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Make no mistake, friends, we are at war. The Christian life is war. It just is. But we conquer by confessing Jesus the Lamb's sacrificial love. It's a kind of conquering that doesn't wield death in order to conquer. It's a kind of conquering that wields life in order to conquer. We conquer by his sacrifice, and we receive his inheritance. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, the NIV, I think, which is the New International Version, a translation of the Bible, makes a big mistake when it translates this verse I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, it sounds nice, um, and ladies, I promise you, I'm not trying to exclude you. This promise is for you just as much as it is for any of the men in the room. But here's the thing. Um, In the first century, being a child means you have a place in the house. Being a son means you have a place in the house, and you're heir to the fortune, That's just how that, this is a cultural reference. So this is, son is a very technical, specific term. Who is God's son? Jesus. He's saying, you will have this inheritance. This inheritance. You will get everything that Jesus gets. Because Jesus took everything that you deserved. He took on your and my heritage of death. So that we can enjoy a heritage of life. So God says he, he won't just take us in, though that would be enough, more than enough. It's a magnificent exchange in which our inheritance of death is exchanged for his inheritance of life, which is, I was trying to imagine this this week, and I just kind of have to say, I really can't. <laughs> it's too good. It's more than I can get in my puny little mind. And so church, uh, God is not thwarted by a post-hope world. Um, the solution is not to have the right political ideologies uh, or, the right, or to buy the right things or to engage on Twitter in the right ways. Uh, the solution is a promise coming from the throne of God, of presence, of healing, of restoration, of contentment, of adoption to all who will have him. And so Sam Gamgee was right. Everything sad will come untrue. Amen.